All right, everyone, welcome to the Solve for Why vlogcast episode number six. This is six goddamn weeks that they locked me in this dungeon facing this young man, Matt Berkey. How are you doing? I'm good. They good. got me. They got you. Mm -hmm. They've been getting us all summer, man. It's a regular theme. Yo, I chip led the online event from 200 people down to 37. I was there. You made a bad play. All right, we are on six weeks into the vlog cast i'm really excited i think it's getting really good kind of like feedback and i'm really enjoying the back and forth uh banter i think people you know they're, they're really enjoying kind of the the thought process what do you think so far about the vlog cast as a whole uh i like it man i like that we have a platform to kind of like create reasonable discourse outside of 260 characters on twitter or whatever the hell it is now mm -hmm. 280. Mm -hmm. and yeah i think like these discussions are beneficial i think that like you know there's a lot of room for this to grow and you know i like that they called you out for wearing the same shirt two weeks in a row did they call out like the owner of apple for wearing the same thing every day well the question is is it the same shirt or do you own six of that no it's shirt? the same goddamn shirt <laughs> give a fuck this shirt i own like 20 of them the other shirt was a gift from my mom. So if you want me to not wear the shirt my mom gave me, maybe you need to send some gifts via Cash App. <laughs> <laughs> we need to get that Patreon account yeah. up and running. <laughs> what the hell's going on over here? Yo, I like that shirt, though. Yeah, it's a nice shirt. Cut to the shirt. <laughs> anyway, so talking about Twitter and the discourse back and forth, you know, they expanded the, the yeah. tweets, right? Yeah, like yeah. The, the number. But the initial tweet, people don't use the max. Uh, but in a response, the, the max is used way more. Interesting. Yeah. I can see that. I mean, not for myself. I'm long-winded. So, like, I exhaust 280 every single time. Yeah. But, yeah, I can see, like, generally when you're responding to something, you're either defending, which obviously takes a lot right. <laughs> of right, characters, right. or you're flaming. Yeah. Right? Like, you're just irate. Like, to want to respond to something... You have to be so emotional yeah. that like you're just going to use all 280 characters and maybe click that add more tweet to it. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting that the initial tweet broadcast doesn't use as many characters as the response broadcast in a general sense. Uh, Jack Dorsey was pretty much just talking a lot about like how they're trying to move away from it being like packs uh, of people. Like effectively, like how do you like innovate the platform in such a way where you're not just like getting fed the same thing by the people you are following and kind of just like, you know, moving it that way. When it's like, you know, it's going to be, it, that's pretty much his biggest goal right now, yeah. which I think is, is a good ad admirable thing because the, the reason that, that they use it that way and the reason why they don't even like allow you to like correct anything in your tweets is because they view it as like, like you're sending a text message to the world. Right. Right. So in a text message, you can't correct. Yeah. I like, I like that they don't have an edit function. Yeah. Uh, I think most people are pretty annoyed at the fact that like three quarters of their timeline are people that they don't follow. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I understand like everybody's trying to expand their worldview. It's just hard. There's so much white noise. And if you're just basing it upon like the people that you follow, all you're doing is like casting a wider net on an already uh, pretty narrow worldview that you and your followers currently have. You know, like if you are following like Tommy Lahren and like ultra conservatives, it's not suddenly just going to show up with like Bill Clinton on your timeline. Right. And the interesting part about it, like um, 
as he was kind of talking, he was saying, for example, and, and you know, we're not going to take sides as it pertains to conservative or, or liberal, just simply speaking, the liberal media people, like when, when they analyzed who they were following, like weren't following like right, right wing. Right. So it's like, so how do you, how are they promoting the, the message? They're just right. promoting left wing message. Twitter, YouTube, and I guess even Facebook to some degree are all facing this big conundrum right now where they're private entities, but they are free speech platforms. Right. And so there's this weird juggling act between who deserves to uh, have the platform available to them versus like who should be taken away. And one of the main uh, people is Alex Jones, who's like uh, a massive conspiracy theorist and like right, all this right. other crazy stuff. But like, to be fair, I'm not a fan of the guy, but it also seems like quite ridiculous to uh, mute him. And it's a really weird, strange thing where it's like, what's the greater good? You know, like giving everybody their absolute rights or sheltering bigger portions of the world from this guy who seems to be batshit. So back to poker, this kind of got derailed. My plan of, of attack is gone. But there was an incident this week at the World Series where a mutual friend of ours, uh, Joey Sal, got robbed in the parking lot of the the Rio, the Rio. Mm -hmm. he said that you know two guys got out of the of the vehicle put a gun to him they took roughly 10k he tweeted it out and there was a response by the world series of poker they just said here's a reminder you know you guys can ask for a security escort to your car right i personally haven't seen that much security in the parking lot i'm not you know saying they're doing a bad job or a great job I personally haven't seen it. Right. So what are you, what are you thinking? Uh, so there's a few things. Um, and before we dive into like where, how much culpability the World Series has and all of that aspect of it, I just want to talk about, you know, the aspect of being a grinder and the dangers that you face. So, uh, you know, I kind of put out a tweet that said like, it wasn't that long ago that I was playing mid stakes. And I remember what it was like to carry your bankroll around yeah. room to room. Right. And that's really negligent like there's just no real excuse for it but also functionally speaking there's no getting around it say you have like a 50k roll and you're playing a two five five ten type stuff right right and your job is effectively to go room to room find the best game have the availability at any given time to step up if need be play bigger maybe you like you you'll even take shots at 10 20 and sell some action whatever the case may be when all of that occurs the liquidity element of it is on you Right. So if I start firing off texts like, yo, there's this super juicy 1020 game or right. the 510 game turned into 51020. Uh, I can't afford to be uh, putting it all up, but like I want to sell some off. I still have to have the funds on me and Correct. trust my network will pay me back. Correct. Right. Correct. In order to do that, you have to be walking around with 10 or 20K at any given time. Yeah. And that's a problem. And I know people will just say, like, well, why not just like leave 10K in uh, boxes in the rooms around town that you most likely play in. It's like, well, because I'm living off this money. Of course. Right? You don't have that luxury. And 50K is like, a, for a lot of mid-stakes grinders, that's kind of on the upper end. There's a lot of guys who are just rolling around with 10 to 40K. And at any given time, you know, they're, they're walking around with 20, 30, 40, 50% of their role on hand. 100%. And it's, it's a big challenge that we can't overlook. And it's incredibly important 
to protect yourself and do everything that you can. I actually uh, wrote an article or a blog about this in 2011. Not my most eloquent piece, but uh, it was when this was really rampant in Vegas. There was like three robberies in the Bellagio bathroom before they put an attendant in there where like guys would walk into the bathroom, get hit in the head by a brick and just get robbed stone cold right there. Wow. And it was weird because I don't know that many people know this, but the casino claims absolutely no responsibility for the chips on the table. Right. Yeah. Right. Sure. So if you're playing 1020 and you have $20,000 in chips on the table and somebody walks by while you're in the bathroom and takes them, that's on you. No, that's crazy. That's scary. Yeah. So now you take your big chips with you when you go to take a piss, right? Yeah. Right. Well, what if there's no bathroom attendant there and now someone hits you in the head with a brick? They're effectively funneling a robbery right to that bathroom, right? So that took place a bunch. Shortly thereafter, the Bellagio bandit struck and he had robbed the Suncoast, which was a game that I often frequented back then. Um, I was lucky to not be there that night, mm-hmm. but you know, he just walks in, guns a blazing, and takes every dollar out of the drawer. There's been stories of like Doyle Brunson getting followed home and held at yeah. gunpoint in his garage. So it's really critical that you take all the precautionary measures necessary. You have to valet if you're playing cash, right? This doesn't apply to MTT players because, and this is where we can kind of get into the World Series side of things. If you're being responsible and diligent, they've set up a very easy system where you never have to have a single cent on you. Yeah, I agree. I think that it's a cash game, mostly cash game player problem. Uh, because, of course, like you're mentioning, the World Series now has like the fast track. You can just like deposit, you know, you could just go and deposit a bunch and then never, right. never pretty much like come in there frequently. You just at the end of the summer. Right. And if you're playing tournaments, you can get a box. You know what your fixed buy-ins are. You're not yeah. like needing that money elsewhere. Right. You know, coming from a cash game background, I like, you know, I don't want to say if I'm carrying money or not, but if a game pops up, I should be able to get in. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know what I'm saying? Uh, and you don't know when these games are going to pop up. Like I could just bust a tournament and all of a sudden there's a game and right. I'm like, oh, well, I should play this game. So I sit, and then all of a sudden, like, I'll get a message. There's a game at the win. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you got to move, yeah. you know? And same thing. All the casinos are all uh, frequently moving around. What I saw as a response from the World Series, which it, it wasn't a formal response, but it was, it was a response. Like, yeah. all, all, you know, sure. effectively, they're saying, you know, we, we, these are the precautions. Maybe that's a step they can take next year where it's like, you know, now there's like hard security. I have a interesting story. I was playing 1025. This was not this summer, but last summer. I was playing 1025 King's Room with D Moon. D Moon's about to quit the game. She's like, hey, can you know, can you walk me to the car? You know? And I was at the time, I'm like, okay, sure. Like, but I didn't think anything of it. But now when this happens, I'm like, yeah, smart. So young, young woman going to the car, known high stakes player. And then she was like, yeah, there was people on the rail watching our game. That's the biggest thing. You know? Cash games get cased. Right. Right? That's what people don't understand. And that was what I wrote in the blog in 2011 is the casino is full of a bunch of one-two degenerates and, and people just on the rail who can't afford to play at all. And to think that there isn't some percentage of them that will go to extreme measures in order to accrue wealth would be crazy. It's naive, right? So we should protect against that. And yeah, I may have misworded my tweet when I said like, you know, it's not that long ago I remember playing mid-stakes. But the reason I said it that way is because when you're playing high stakes, this isn't an issue. You have separate money to live with than you do to play with. And you just keep chips all around town in boxes. So like I never have any sort of amount of money on me outside of like walking cash, a couple hundred bucks. But yeah, like, you know, when you're in a big game and you're playing 1025, you're playing 50, 100, whatever the case may be, and you have all these chips and people are just 
able to watch, mm -hmm. right? Especially like the 1020 and below level right. where you're not in some private room. You're right. just in the gaming floor and people are able to walk by and see $20,000 and maybe they've never seen $20,000 before in their life. And then they watch you never go to the cashier. Correct. Right? They just keep an eye on you and it's like th those chips went directly from table to book bag. Correct. Well, it's like, okay, yeah, you're getting fallout out of there and you're going to take a brick to the head sometimes and that's really problematic. So like, yeah, it, it's important. Uh, you know, Tristan uh, Wade, who I have a lot of respect for, a good kid, basically said like, you know, this isn't our responsibility. They should up security. It's like, yeah, you're right. Absolutely. Once it gets dark, there should be three times as many cars patrolling the parking lot as there are. There's no denying that. But it is always our responsibility to take every single extreme measure possible to protect ourselves, regardless of whatever other insurances are in place. You know what I mean? Like, even if they had a patrol car in every aisle of that parking lot, I still would valet if yeah. I were playing cash. I would still be at the main Rio Valet and walk an extra 25 steps to ensure that the, the difference between me going from the cash game to my car is like nothing. Yeah. There's just like no opportunity there. Yeah. And even if it costs you like a couple bucks, like it's just like. Yeah. Happening. It's like it's, it's the same notion as like to not circle the block once. When you come home late night after playing a big game where you have money on you. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. It's crazy because like all you have to do is be aware and it takes literally 45 extra seconds of precautionary measure out of your life. So one of the one of the interesting things like as I, I look at the landscape of poker and people that have left poker. So there's any Duke, Galen Hall, Fedor, you know, in some instances like Phil Goffon, et cetera. And they're all in the, in the instance of like solving problems, right? And anytime I'm looking at, you know, venture capitalists and venture capitalist funds and firms, there are Vanessa Selps, uh, you know, they're big on like the poker player's mind mm -hmm. simply because it's built on solving problems. What are your thoughts as it pertains to the ability of poker players transitioning into the problem-solving uh, atmosphere? Well, it's, it's, it's specific, right? So most of these instances are with, with regard to finance. And the reason is, is because uh, poker players have an acute sensibility of solving problems with high risk, mm -hmm. right? So like they're asked to demonstrate some sort of skill set where um, a very risky endeavor is presented to them and there are multiple pathways to go down. And some of it is like, you know, predictability. Some of it is being able to be rational uh, and not have emotional responses to markets. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in a general sense, like high level poker players are going to be trained to operate under chaos in a very rational manner and find solutions to problems that may otherwise not be obvious to anybody who's operating in more of an emotional landscape. Is that something you think can be like built into a business? So let's, can we get for example, all these players that we think are very good and develop like a problem-solving firm. Is that a thing? It's a really cool thing. Uh, so there is a show that's no longer on air that used to be on CBS called Scorpion. And it was based on this guy. Yeah, I got something to say, man. These people talking about basketball diaries. I don't know about basketball diaries. Like, like listen, I never heard of the damn show. I'm sure it's great. <laughs> But, like, all these comments were talking about, oh, Christian's a fool. He never seen Basketball Diaries. <laughs> Listen, Leonardo DiCaprio is known for Titanic, not Basketball Diaries. I don't know nothing about that. Go ahead. He's a boss. Um, 
but yeah, so Scorpion was loosely based on this guy, Walter O'Brien, who is self-proclaimed the most intelligent man in the world. He claims that he has an IQ of like 193. Mm. Uh, he did a podcast with Tim Ferriss. It's actually a fascinating, riveting podcast. But the thing is, is that a lot of uh, what he said during that pod was kind of like debunked by the community. I don't know. I, I don't know enough about him or like what he does or how legitimate all of this stuff is. But what I do know that was fascinating is he was basically saying that his business is exactly that. They license themselves out or they freelance mm -hmm. for very wealthy companies, corporations, and individuals to solve uh, very complex problems. It's like scandal. Have you I don't ever know. seen Scandal? No, I don't know what that is. It's the same thing. Like they kind of, well, it's in the political side. This woman gets hired and she has a firm. Yep. And she gets hired to like solve big problems and big scandals. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You know? Like to put spins on things. Yeah, yeah exactly. Things. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously there's a niche need for this, um, but I think it extrapolates out bigger than that. Right. One of the cool stories that he told, and again, like I don't know how much truth there is to it, but it was a really awesome story, even if it's made up, was that um, he was hired by this very wealthy father. And his son was in line to uh, inherit all of his wealth. But his son was engaged to get married to a complete and utter gold digger. Everybody around him knew it. She was just uh, literally only in it to have a piece of the inheritance, et cetera, et cetera, right? So he was attempting to rationalize with his son and kind of like demonstrate the error of ways. And his son just wanted nothing to do with him and ostracize himself, right? Oh, wow. So they had a very rocky relationship, kind of broke things off. Well. He hired Walter O'Brien's Scorpion crew, and they set this whole thing up where uh, the father was going to get into a fight with the son in order to fast-track the marriage and make them elope. Yeah. And the son's best friend was in on it and basically said, like, hey, I'm going to this wedding in Puerto Rico this weekend anyway. Why don't you and your fiancé come and elope there? I'll already be there. I'll, I'll be your best man, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah. So they get funneled into this path where uh, they run away, they elope, right? Now, the entire wedding crew is hired by Walter O'Brien. It's all farce. It's faked, yeah. right? So nothing is legal. Mm. They come back to the States. This is what I want to do. Go ahead. It's sick. <laughs> so they come back to the States. Uh, he's still not speaking to his father. He now thinks he's happily married. And within 45 days of her becoming a legalized citizen and all this other stuff, she files for divorce. Mm. And now she wants half of his worth, mm. right? So as the divorce process is going through, she gets served with papers. Yeah. And the papers basically say she's being deported. Oh. And she can't figure out why. So yeah. she calls like the immigration services yeah. and everything else. She's not married. All of it was a con. Got her. By this Walter O'Brien crew, right? Yeah. Who faked her green card, faked the wedding license, faked everything. And whenever she was like, no, I'm legally married, yada, yada, yada. They're like, that's not real. And she got deported. Her High stakes bluff. Right. Her, her now never to be husband was like super apologetic, ended up having a great relationship with his dad and they moved on. Listen, if you're out there and you have a gold digging girlfriend that you want to make your wife, Software is here for you. <laughs> Software is here for you. We'll figure it out. Whatever your problem is, we got you, man. Software Y investments, problem solving, <laughs> whatever you need. We'll we'll hire a whole wedding crew. We have a whole production. We can we can make it a movie. Whatever it is you need, we got you. So and yeah, I, I think that that's super fascinating. But I actually think, like in a more noble sense, it kind of uh, extrapolates out in a big picture. Mm -hmm. So we kind of mentioned that you know things like Liberatus were created to yeah. be a problem-solving mechanism, right? It's a it's a real-time learning device 
that is running through very complex strategies with no emotion and attempting to arrive at optimal solutions. I think humans get to add a nice layer to that, which can sometimes be problematic, but in, in a big picture sense, when we're talking about true worldwide problems, yeah. adding the, the threat of empathy to the problem solving uh, capacity goes a really long way. Right. Now it gets tricky whenever you start dealing with human lives, right? There's always this complex conundrum of like, what's worth more one life or a thousand. For sure. And it's obviously always the, the masses over one, but when you personalize that one life, right. we make egregious errors in, in judgment. So, you know, I, I think that like um, things like Liberatus serve in that capacity well, because they there is no room for empathy when you're measuring one life versus a thousand. Yeah. And uh, the machine is just better served to come up with what's optimal in that scenario. But when you're talking about just like real world problems, um, be it homelessness, be it drug addiction, be it gold digging wives, gold digging wives. Right. Um, you know, being able to empathize with the person who's struggling can often lead to the most optimal solution for everybody involved. Don't code the DR, man. They, they want that money. <laughs> All right. So in this week's poker, pretty much premier events, there was two events this week, one being the 888, another being the 10K at Aria. So let's first begin with the 888. I thought it was, again, another massive success. Buys $888. Lines were out the door. Uh, I love the eight-handedness of it. I love the 30-minute levels that turns into an hour level mm-hmm. I th- uh, on day two. I like the starting chip stacks are very reasonable. Uh, and I thought it was great. I-, I think this is a staple of the World Series. And I like the fact that this is a very unique structure in that it pushes the things pretty quickly, but gets into into a little longer on day two. Now, some of the some of the flaws, I believe, is that they had a flight that began really late and ended really late. It ended, I believe you told me it was 4 a.m. I think that's pretty ridiculous and not something that pros or recreationals are going to like. No one wants to play until 4 a.m. Your staff doesn't want to be there until 4 a.m. Of course, they're trying to move things so that they could get this uh, big prize. That was avoidable, though, I think. Um, They started the flight at 5 p.m., which is just too late. And I understand there's a seating issue, but when you're running a 30-minute turbo, 3 p.m. at that point now would be 10 levels in. You're probably going to have everybody sat and uh, begin having bust-outs. And I think like late reg was until the end of level 12. Yes. If you just reduce it to the end of level 10, now you can start that second flight at 3 p.m. Yeah. You just ended at level 10 uh, shortly thereafter, maybe even at 4 p.m., whatever the case may be. Um, and if you have to reduce one level from from gameplay, then so be it. But generally speaking, I think that the Colossus, the 888, were massive successes. They were fast day ones. Now, the Colossus remained fast the whole way through. Yeah. But you started with a pile of chips, so like it, it didn't necessarily play like a true turbo. It played like some hybrid. Uh, basically played like a bad structured deep stack event, if that makes sense. Um, which, when I say bad structure, take it with a grain of salt. I just yeah, mean I a fast structured deep stack event. The slowing down on day two, I think, is fantastic. The 888 ended up getting a million up top. It was a big, it was a big challenge because, uh, you know, for for pros, it's like, well, what do you play? Because there's this five million guarantee, 10k, that seems like it's gonna be pretty good. It's great structure. 
You can buy in late onto day two and still have 33 blinds. Uh, half the field would likely be gone. That immediately just increases your ROI, of course, or, or sorry, your EV. Um, but at the same time, there's a comparable prize pool. Actually, it ended up being a larger prize pool. And this 888 that is wildly soft mm -hmm. and you make the money day one. Yeah. Right. So it's like, yeah, it's a challenge to get through day one. But when you do. Correct. You're down to 10% or 12% of the field, something like that. You have a legit shot at a million bucks. So talking about the Aria party poker, I, I do like party poker entering the market of Vegas. I, yeah. think, I think it's a great tournament. I think that their tour is pretty amazing. You know, we went to the Bahamas for their tour. It was great. I went to Montreal for their tour. It was great. Now, the thing that I saw that, and it happened to you, was if you bust, you can't rebuy the same day, but you can rebuy on day two, which is very awkward. I don't get it. I just don't understand it. I'm all for freeze-outs. Mm -hmm. I think that's great. I'm all for multi-flight freeze-outs where you can play each of the individual flights. Right. I'm even all for freeze-out-ish type things with one re-entry. Right. But I don't understand this, and Venetian has done this a lot in the past, and it's infuriated me, where they cap your re-entries, but then re like uncap them the following day. Right? So like to say, like, okay, you can play twice today on day one, and if you bust, then you can come back tomorrow with far fewer blinds and come back into the event. Yeah. It's like this forced timeout doesn't make any sense. You have the capability of keeping track of how many times I played. If I just want to play twice on 1A and forfeit my ability to buy in late on day two, then I should be allowed to do that. And the biggest problem I find with it is that it heavily encourages people to buy in the last level of day one, right. try to bag, and if they fail, then buy into day two, right? If they succeed, then they still have a re-entry now on day two. And it, in my opinion, does the exact opposite of what they're trying to do, which is protect satellite winners, give, give recreationals more of a shot, right? You actually increase the likelihood, if pros are being strategic about it, of having to face that pro twice and eliminate him twice, or maybe three times, right? I see. So the ideal strategy would be to play the final level of day 1A, and if you don't bag, play the final level of day 1B, and if you don't bag, play day 2. Isn't this all just getting pretty ridiculous? Like, we should just go back to the freeze-outs at this point. You I have understand. to strike a balance with a $5 million guarantee and a freeze-out. But it seems like everyone is complaining either about the amount of re-entries or the re-entry structure or, or, or what. I think, I think we're moving towards a place where it's going to be you get two binds a day per flight or it's a freeze-out. Fine. Like, you know what I'm Fine. saying? Fine. I think that's totally reasonable. Don't ever make me sit out for seven levels for no good reason. Yeah, I think that's... It makes me not want to gamble with you anymore, right? Yeah. It's like when I got turned away from the window, I was like, okay, my decision is easy. I'm playing the 888 tomorrow. Right. Like, I just don't care anymore. Like, I'm annoyed. I'm annoyed that I have to leave your property, go home and sit and think about what I did, and then come back 10 hours later and fire another desperation shell. It's not even desperation. I, I would have gotten to come in between 50 and 33 blinds. Yeah. It's just seemingly unnecessary. And honestly, it, like I said, I didn't think about it at the time because there's so much going on. There's so many other events to play. But it forces pros to try to game the system, right? It disincentivizes anybody from showing up to level one, right? Kenny Haller uh, wrote a very well-researched piece 
on how ROI or, or sorry, how EV increases the longer late reg is open, mm -hmm. right? And uh, it's kind of ironic because like Pads and I went back and forth a little bit, which makes sense. You know, I get it. He's he's a company guy and he should protect the brand. And I love Rob. I think he's an innovator. And I I'm sure maybe you know, Pads. There's there's a there's a likelihood he had a an opinion on this prior to them releasing it. Right. Like he might have been in right. A, Pads was explaining, like, the reason for this is that they want to protect satellite winners. They want to uh, encourage them to uh, play, or, or they're, for sorry, they're forced to play from the beginning. I see, yeah. So they want to protect them from having to face, like, a Bonomo twice in the same day. But the fact of the matter is that that's only really relevant on day two anyway, right? So if they have to face Bonomo twice on day two because he bagged one of the day ones and then gets to show up day two, bust and re-enter in the first three levels, you didn't really do your job, right? So if you want to protect from that, don't allow the re-entry. And I get it. There's this sensitivity to like, well, we might not make the guarantee then. Correct. And that was what I pointed out is like, you could give me as many reasons as you want, but this just seems like a thinly veiled excuse to protect yourself in case you're not meeting the guarantee, right? If you're going into day two and you've only got 3 million worth of entries, you're going to drum up 200 people even if it means running flip satellites to ensure that you hit that guarantee. Tell me, tell me how the tournament poker world operated without guarantees. I never saw that era. Bigger binds, right? No, th this doesn't really happen at the small buy-in level because it's unnecessary. But bigger buy-ins were just commonplace. And, and this is a whole nother discussion that I was having with like Tim O'Reilly and, and a few others where it's like, you have Tim, to- Tim Riley. What did I say, O'Reilly? Yeah. He looks Irish. <laughs> He's from Boston, man. He could have been Irish. Uh, yeah, Tim Riley. Right? What, was, what was his argument? Basically, he, he wanted to eliminate these gimmicky events, right? Mm. But Oh, yeah. So his conversation was the World Series used to be a place where, like, of prestige. Pros, pros used to just, like, bang it out all summer. Right. And just, like, it was pro on pro, and then the bracelet meant something. And, you know, it was a six-week gathering of people just going hard at each other. Right. And to bring that full circle, what I'm saying is that the landscape has drastically changed. In the past, you didn't have to guarantee a 10K event because all WPT events were 10K. All of the WSOP championship events were 10K. There was no circuit. There was no place for smaller buy-ins and the economy was booming. Mm -hmm. So you were getting massive fields. Like, do you, do you know that Five Diamond used to be over $2 million to first place. That's wild. Chino Ream won it for like 1.9. Like tournaments were more of a rarity. They were a spectacle. They were an event. The WPT maybe only had like seven or eight events all year long. And they were massive 10Ks. But this is, okay, so you're saying we've decreased the barrier of entry and in came a bunch of money. Recreational money Recreational that money. literally doesn't care about its EV, doesn't care about if it's winning or not, doesn't care about mm -hmm. its ROI. Yes, it wants all of those things. It wants to win, but it's buying a lottery ticket, right? So it's not looking at rake. It's not looking at ROI. It's not looking at wait times. It's looking for an experience. And that's what's being sold at these price points. And that's fine. This goes back to what we were talking about last week. Like if we wanted to implement the pro card, mm -hmm. where at a $400 WSOP, you're absolutely not allowed to play if you play for a living. Fine. I'm fine with that, right? But as long as it's an open field event, you do not get to bitch as a pro while you're recouping ROIs somewhere in the hundreds. Okay, but I mean, let's say Tim Riley's argument is this is not a good experience. Like, we're not delivering a good experience for recreational players. These long lines are not good experiences for them. 
us not facilitating nine handed is not good experience. Like we, we, these multiple things are maybe not good experiences here's, for Rex here's or my pros. Here's my counter. People who love Disney, do they have a good experience? Yes. Do I, they routinely go back and spend hundreds of millions of dollars per year? Of course. Yeah. Right? It's one of the biggest companies in the world. Right. Do they have lines everywhere you fucking go? Oh, for sure. You can't take a piss without waiting for a half hour. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There's just some things that are unavoidable as growth occurs. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, ideally we'd love to see the World Series be able to go out and get a venue and like play at Raider Stadium where we could just house everybody. But like that's improbable. I think what people are seeing is they're raking first place money in all events, right? Okay. So they're putting they're bringing in millions on millions on millions for this series, right? And then there's multiple things that add up. Like we're looking at the ten-handed forced, the long lines, the lack of uh, security. Security. Uh, all these things are just adding up, and they're just like, okay, enough is enough. We're paying a lot of rake. Like you need to do something. So, I think if it was one thing, you know, people are just like, oh, all right, fine. These fucking lines are really long, you know. But right. it's like the lines are long, the security, the bathroom, I, I all get these it. things. Yeah. I get it. You know? I don't disagree with the gripes. Yeah. I disagree with not being able to see the forest through the trees. Right. Not being able to recognize how much you're benefiting from that, that you still continually put up with it day in and day out because it's worth it. Right. But that's like a monopoly where it's, it's like, not. You can go to the Venetian. I understand. But that's the same thing with like the poker stars argument where it's like, oh, yeah, you could go play on 888. No. It's like, no, because no, no, no. like, there wasn't fair competition. Party eventually inserted themselves. The Venetian is a very, very big venue. They're running million dollar guarantees every single day. Mm-hmm. Right. You could absolutely go play the Venetian or the win. Yeah. Right. And for everybody who's crying prestige, how many pros have you seen wearing a gold bracelet in the last 10 years? No, no. Of course, people don't wear the gold bracelet. Right. Because they don't give a shit. It's about the money. Right. I think people just don't want to be tacky. You know who shows up to their local room wearing their $1,500 gold bracelet? Joe Rec. I'm just looking at it in terms of why are all these pros that are very smart have similar viewpoints? I think it's just the amount of rake that's being made by the World Series of Poker and kind of the fact that it takes a long time for them to listen to their customers. Okay, so this is where we have to be cognizant of our influence and how much better of an experience it is because of this, right? We have absolute power to influence the way that they implement their structure. They immediately switched to a big blind ante this year. It took almost no time whatsoever. Like, I don't care if you think that they're unjustifiably raking, right? Because you're still showing up, which means that you're still beating that rake for a high enough figure that you think it's worthwhile. I think what's happening is that there is... Because of the lower barrier, people can just afford to take one-off shots 100%. a lot. Yep. Whereas, like, if this were all 5Ks and 10Ks, we're going to need backers. We're going to need, uh, you know, a lot more, like, top-end money yeah. just throwing it, it we, into We were talking a lot about sustainability. And the fact is, if we turn these into uh, 3K-plus events, I don't know that the World Series could sustain a decade. I just don't think it could. I mean, it's tough, man. That 5K-6 max got record numbers this year. Yeah, fine, but that's, that's, a, that's a tough event. It's a it well, it's a tough event when it doesn't get record numbers, but a lot of that is off the byproduct that that price point just was neglected this summer, right? There just wasn't a lot to choose from. Mm-hmm. But I saw a lot of players who would otherwise play the five k six max that were dicking around in the. Well, we've se- we've seen the five diamond have back to back record numbers now. Yeah. that's a ten k right. LAPC 
Also big numbers. Also very much similar to what happened in the past where these are special events. The LAPC's down. LAPC used to be the biggest 10K in the world. Uh, It's greatly dropped off, for sure. It's not even a million to first. It hasn't been a million for many years. So it's like, I I don't think that's a great example. LA's the biggest market, biggest poker market in the United States. And there's been a flat line trajectory for the LAPC, if not a decreasing one. Now, the series as a whole may be doing very well, but again, greatly lower barrier of entry. They're running these $100, 27-flight events where you can buy directly into day two for like 20x the cost or whatever the case may be. There's a lot of ways that they are drawing from the liquidity pool. Yeah, I guess we'll see. The, The numbers won't lie. I do agree with you that the numbers at this lower barrier are really high and i don't i don't see how that's a bad thing that's that's a great thing for poker and then eventually hopefully is like trickle up you know it has to that's the only way this ecosystem survives keep bringing in new money that has to recycle right not all of them can make it not all of them are going to fail either but that money has to effectively recycle. Some of them are going to win. Some of them are going to rip off a bracelet for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, and you're going to yeah, yeah, and you're going to get them for years to come. We have to recognize what we at the top are are gaining simply by them focusing on the bottom. Yeah, that's the weird part about the market right now, and that's kind of like gearing us into this vlogger talk. Like a lot of the things that in the comments that I'm seeing is like. Well, there's just so much free content. Like, I could learn ranges. I can learn all this stuff from, like, free shit. Yeah. So, like, why should people, like, ever pay? Yeah. And I think it's fair if you are incredibly good at self-teaching. Um, because I think, like, the freemium products that are out there are extremely limiting. And I think that a lot of them are very uh, circular in nature in the sense that if you take 10 freemium products, right, uh, and start to consume them all simultaneously, you'll just see contradiction after contradiction, For sure. right? For sure. And I think that that's where the paid product begins to become very valuable. And I think that's very similar to the poker landscape in that there's a lot of free content out there by vloggers, by poker news, by whoever, and none of that's really vetted. Uh, right. And there's just a lot of contradiction, a lot of... And you're uh, just generally trusting like second, third, fourth, maybe even fifth hand interpretation. Uh, it becomes very challenging to actually think that there is anything of value there. Specifically, if you're not knowledgeable enough to compare it to anything. So the vlogger sphere, because like we got a little bit off topic. Mm-hmm. Daniel Negreanu, obviously fan favorite. People love anything to do with Daniel Negreanu. And he does pretty much a vlog every single day throughout the World Series of Poker. Very popular. He has incredible turnaround time. And we get kind of an inside scoop to, like, some of the high stakes, uh, you know, tournaments, 10K Raz, things like that. Um, What do we think about his temporary appearance in the vlog throughout the summer? So I think Daniel is a great example of why I can't wrap my head around uh, what people ultimately want out of the vlogger sphere and why it's so unclear to me what, what the next level of scale is, right? His vlogs are incredible given the, the turnaround time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the first summer he did it, I literally watched every single one. Uh, and I still tune into a lot of them when he makes deep runs and things along those lines. But what I don't understand is they often don't outperform a Nimi vlog or yeah. a Brad Owen vlog. And that's crazy to me. Um, I, I get it 
that there is some sort of, uh, I guess, sense of the every man wants to follow another every man's attempt to uh, rise to, to reaching the dream, relate. I guess. They can yeah. But Daniel's so different, right? He gives you a look at the lifestyle that everybody would die to achieve. And the only thing I can parallel to this was in the early 2000s, uh, Barry Greenstein launched a media company called Poker Road. Yeah. That was so far ahead of its time, man. I mean, Poker Road today would fucking smash. Well, I remember Poker Road when, like, they, they went on a dice tour. Yeah. Uh, they yes. went on a dice tour. Uh, Ivy's, like, throwing dice. Yeah. And, 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 you know, that was wild. Yeah, so, like, yeah. this was, like, right at the early onset of uh, video technology being readily available, right? And shout out to Barry Greenstein. I think that he is like one of the most well-rounded, interesting individuals that this community has. Barry Greenstein will definitely solve the gold digging problem. <laughs> I'll tell you that, man. Barry Greenstein don't fuck around. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Um, but yeah, like, you know, he was very in intuitive to like what the community wanted and Poker Road was it, man. Like they had, uh, they had the Poker Road podcast, which had a, a myriad of people come through as the host. Scott Huff was a host at one point. Uh, Ali Najad got his start there. Um, you know, Josie Bach, uh, yeah. Barry Steps, stepson, half son, full son, not sure. Something along those lines was also a host there. Gavin Smith. Oh my God. Gavin Smith, man. You could not help but fall in love with this guy. He was so fucking raw and like everything that you dream of when you're talking about like building a character. Mm -hmm. Like they, they called him the caveman and there was this constant soundboard audible thing that they would go to where it would just say ooga booga. Wow. And it was just like, man, like you would just listen for hours about these guys talking shop, talking about being on the road. And like, it truly was like way ahead of its time. Barry would follow Ivy around city to city, stop to stop, and just like film. It was the only look we've ever had at Ivy being human. Yeah. And it just crumbled because it was too soon. Barry, right, let's talk to him. Let's yeah, talk. Let's... I'm going to listen, Barry, I'll solve your problem <laughs> of Poker Road, right? Um, we'll take care of Poker Road. You'll take care of well, the, the Golden. The problem why Poker Road would fail again now is because nobody cares. Do you nope. think that's the case? Well, in some regard, yeah. It's like Ivy may be special. He might be a unicorn. Yeah. But imagine Poker Road relaunches tomorrow, right? Yeah. And Barry works something out with Daniel where he's like, hey, we're just going to do a weekly vlog where I follow you ba basically for like years, right? And we just put it out there and we try to get a following. And on top of that, we're going to we're going to put your dat podcast in there mm. and then we're going to launch a few other podcasts. You know, maybe we're going to get the self Y podcast in there. Maybe we're going to get Joey Ingram's podcast in there and we're just going to be this media company for poker. Right. Mm. And part of me is like, fuck yeah, man, that sounds amazing. Yeah. Let's create a platform for vloggers where we can all coordinate. Let's create a platform for podcasts where we can all coordinate. Like let's all cultivate the biggest audience we can. You know what's going to happen? Nothing. And it's not that nobody cares about Daniel and it's not that nobody cares about the vloggers and it's not that nobody cares. Yeah. It's that we're still just restricted to this 100, 150,000 people that give a shit about the poker lifestyle. Well, I don't know. We're going to have to solve it. I would love to have a conversation with like Barry and, you know, some of the heads of Poker Go and, and Jay Carver and, and the, all these people that are in, or influencers or becoming big influencers yeah. in our market. And I'm sure they all have their agenda and their goals. Right. But I think... I think we can all facilitate a, little corners of the market. 
Like, you know, we're gambling really hard on the original content side of things. Mm -hmm. We released the Origins uh, series that's going to be, you know, wrapping up in the next couple of months. Yeah, Dead Money uh, was released. Dead Money was, was, you know, I would say a success. But, um, you know, it's still not something that's available for free. It didn't get a ton of eyes. We're gambling really heavy on this To Be Determined documentary that we're putting out shortly. Um, the, the hopes are that eventually, like, we're going to start to strike a chord with somebody who doesn't give a shit about the actual constructs of the game. This show that we have is kind of a uh, half vlog, half podcast. Although I, I would argue that it's like 70% podcast and 30% vlog. If we were really able to, specifically you and I, dedicate a lot of time to this and just do like a lot of filming throughout the course of the week, mm -hmm. I think it could come to be like more of like a 60-40 split where like we actually do get like a 10 minute package. I'm trying, I'm trying to make this a podcast that can go on the road. So if we're in your town for a tournament, you can show up to our podcast and then, you know, we'll have seats for you and, I'll, we'll and food and food and wine and everything you want. And I mean, honestly, that's, I'll, I'll have a bunch of shirts for you guys. That probably is the play. Like we're planning on doing an academy in, uh, in Atlantic City in September. And the idea is the production crew will all be there. We'll have all of our equipment. You and I are just going to sit down and we're going to record our podcast per usual. Right. And, you know, it's going to be at a different venue. It's going to be on a different set. But, you know, we're not going to stop. This, this, this train doesn't stop rolling along. Yeah. Uh, so the vloggers, interesting. So we had Johnny Vibes here at the Academy. And he's a great guy. Um, I think he puts out amazing content. Where is this going as it pertains to the vloggers? Because, like, this is obviously a hybrid of that content. We saw Brad Owen surpass Nimi now as it pertains to, um, you know, numbers of subscribers. But nobody's really gone mainstream. Nobody has really broken out of the, the shell of poker. Well, nobody's uh, really challenged it either. Correct. Right? Like, the, the big thing that we can look at is... Uh, you know, obviously the trooper was first. He broke through the first, but like Nimi was the first like blogger celebrity, right? And to my knowledge, like him and Brad are pretty pretty good yeah. friends. They coordinate a lot of meetup games and things like that together. Do you think there's beefs though? Do you think there's beefs? Uh, I mean, there's beef between Johnny and Doug. All right, so that's cool. Um, and we can kind of talk about that. But the point I want to make is that like you know, in a lot of ways, uh, we just saw Brad copy what Nimi did. Mm -hmm. And maybe strip it down and make it a little bit more raw, maybe a little bit more about poker, a little bit more about the jerk, whatever. Um, then you saw it kind of split off a little bit. You saw like Boski go strictly MTTs and has a very like dry uh, sarcasm about him. Um, you know, we see guys like Jamin who have a lot more fun with it. Mm. Uh, you know, he kind of portrays himself as like the jovial wreck, but it's like, I know Jamin, he's a good winning player. Like there's definitely no question about it, but you know, he, he looks like he'll punch somebody in the face too. Yo, he's, he's yeah. a big dude. Yeah. Um, but you know, he started to like up the production value a little bit. Like for Nimi and, and Brad, it was a lot of like shots, like, like scenes in the game and things like that. And then Correct. Uh, Nimi added like the drone shot and like, it all became very systematic. You know, you could kind of count on, uh, a, a three-part or, or, or three-part open um, middle close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to each vlog, right? Yeah. Um, John Man started to get a little bit more creative. He started to use like the comic book mm -hmm. uh, flair, which I, I just thought was like amazing. I, I know like our guys have have dabbled with that a little bit here and there. Johnny like really upped the production value and just has like 
you know, uh, he's operating with the best equipment. He has a really good editor. It's just very well put together. And then you have somebody like Marley uh, and uh, Trey Mommy who go a much more comedic route, mm. right? So um, Trey Mommy is the uh, vlogger who uses his kids and does all those skits, which yeah, I think yeah. are fucking genius. Yeah. Um, you know, it's crazy to me. But that's, his time's limited, man. That kid's got to grow up. Yeah, yeah, fine. <laughs> Uh, but it's crazy. Like he doesn't have a very big following. But the it's some so of, some of the skits are get very popular. The point that I was trying to make with the fact that like he doesn't have a big following is that it seems as though the community is very fickle. They really gravitate towards that systematic approach that kind of presents hand histories right. and uh, you know minimal humor, minimal distractions, minimal B roll, just like something that flows really nicely and cleanly from start to finish. And I think Marley hit a home run because she was very unique in the sense that she was really the only woman doing it. And she steered very, very far clear of what was already established, yeah. right? She went heavily against the grain and really pushed the envelope, right? She went raunchy comedy. Um, and I think people gravitated to that very quickly. Um, and, and, you know, like, I don't know how sustainable something like that is. If she really wanted to pour herself into it, I think like you know you would see the comedy sketches grow. Right. You would start to see the production value grow, and I think that she actually would have a real shot at mainstream, um, simply due to the fact that it would appeal to other audiences. Yeah. Right. Um, humor just tends to, and there's more of a likelihood of it going viral. Poker so niche. you love me even if it's fake cause I don't fucking care at all you've been out all night I don't know where you've been you're slurring all your words not making any sense but I don't fucking care at all cause I have hella feelings for you I don't fucking care Like they ain't even there Cause I have hella feelings for you I act like I don't fucking care Hey Kim, I got this week's hands What's up everyone? I'm back And I look down at pocket aces and I don't skip a beat I rebet here to... 155. Big blind calls, button calls, three of us are in this. You see an ace in the door card, and then an ace comes on the next card, so we have quad aces. So I bet. In a quickly calls. And the jack of hearts comes on the turn. I check it over to him again, and he really quickly puts in. Bets about $300. Not an ideal turn card here, clearly. I call. River comes a queen. He fires again, 600 quickly. And I jam. 1425. And my opponent thinks about it for quite some time deep into the tank. You love me, even if it's fake, cause I don't fucking care at all. And he eventually decides on a call. 
This used to be the land of the tryhard. I just think about like other very successful guys who have kind of gone down this path. Um, people like Jenna Marbles, right? Yeah. And it all started with a, a joking uh, makeup tutorial, mm. right? Of like how to make yourself attractive when you're unattractive. And blew up, went super viral. Going viral is very challenging now, right? It, it's, it's a difficulty. Uh, the bro science guy, I can't, Dom, Dom something, right? He did comedic sketches in, in fitness. And fitness yeah. is a massive, massive platform. Unfortunately, poker is just not that big. Polk is the biggest, has the biggest following, as far as I know, of any single poker follower. Right. And it's capped out at like 150. Right. That's kind of what he said as it pertains to Jason Somerville. At some point, it was Jason Somerville mm -hmm. as well. And then he capped out on Twitch. You right. Know? And then he had to like move laterally into something else. Yeah. And I think Jason has the advantage of like potentially getting into esports. Mm -hmm. Doug kind of positioned himself into another very niche market in crypto. Correct. Which is even smaller potentially than, than poker. That yeah. won't always stay that way. If he's one of the, if he's like one of the founding fathers of crypto videos and 10 years from now, crypto is worldwide. Right. Then he's going to do very well for himself. Correct. I really do think that there's uh, a lot of room for expansion in the vlogger sphere as a whole. And I think that we have a lot of good grounded characters that are interested in doing that. Yeah. So I think that like guys like Nimi, Brad, Marley, Johnny, Jamin, all, all of these like cast of characters that have done well to build an audience for themselves. I think at some point, like it behooves the entire community to kind of come together and start to work as one. I think the same thing kind of holds true for streams. Like if they can figure out ways to like bounce characters back and forth. I mean, that was a thing, right? When high stakes poker, there was the same people. It was high stakes poker, poker after dark, big game, mm -hmm. all these, it was, everybody wanted to see semi far and Tom Dwan and Phil Yeah, yeah and it's know? like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we're all yeah. gonna just do this, you know what I mean? Uh, and, and I think that there is a lot of room for collaboratory efforts to kind of advance the space as a whole. And that's ultimately what we're all should be incentivized to do is to bring more eyeballs to the space, right? To portray poker in such a way, in such a glamorized way, but in a truthful way, right? In a peel back the curtain kind of way of like, these are the true ups and downs. Like that's what's gonna captivate people. That's what's gonna bring them in. How about when you're beginning though? Like, because, because when you're beginning in poker, those results might not be so good. Right. And even in fitness, like you don't see, you don't see your body change with one or two or three or four or even 10 workouts. Right. Like you have to go like three, four months yeah. and then you'll see like 10 pounds come off, but yeah. you look the same to yourself, Yeah, you know? Yeah. And I can speak to that, you know? Yeah. Like it, it took like six months for me to be like, damn, I kind of look different, you know? Or for people to just have, that have not seen you be like, oh, you lost some weight, uh, right. you know, things like that. But you have to be impatient with action, right? It's like, as it pertains to fitness, like we got blood work done, we go into the gym, like we have to, every time I'm eating a chip, I'm like, fuck, you know? Um, so, I, I heard about you eating some chips. Yeah, let's not talk about that right now. <laughs> We're talking about impatience. Uh, uh, yeah, no, I, I think your point is very valid. Uh, specifically, like when there aren't quantifiable metrics to just lean on and say like, oh, I can clearly see by mm -hmm. these numbers that things are changing in a favorable manner, right? 
And I think the best way to be patient with results is to have a process that you can trust. Yeah. Right. So whenever you're talking about like fitness and nutrition or poker, it's all the work that you put in that leads to the process. So if you're very well studied in poker, you just have to be able to trust the process and understand that the results are going to vary, but they may come. Yeah. It's when you falter in the process that now all of a sudden being impatient with action feels really painful. Yeah. People always talk about like, you know, uh, the process is what you should be looking forward to, not the end result. Like, the end result's so disappointing. Yeah. You know, when, when you seek out to win the main event of the World Series of Poker, it's, it's getting there and having that opportunity laid before you that is just so unnerving and so exhilarating and so amazing. I see what you did. What would I do? You try to become the host of the show. You try to become the host of the show because you know the next topic is the main event. And now you're like talking about the main event. I'm laying you over softballs, man. Let's talk about the main event where the results really count. Yeah. You know, yeah. the results really count in the main event. My deepest run, I believe, was day four. Yeah, day four. Um, Your first one ever. My first one ever. After that, it was all the fucking results were shit. Um, and you made day seven. Yeah. You know. Uh, well, that's that was, weird to hear. D7 is far. Yeah, it was exhausting. I've never felt so physically exhausted from playing poker before in my life. How many? So my first cat, my first cash was my first main event. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of talking to people about like how, how like the pressure psychologically rises day to day. But I think it's like, day four where it really begins because like i remember walking into day four and i don't, and obviously it's going to be a little bit different now because there's post limbs and stuff yeah but when i went there there was no post limbs right, right. they're just breaking down the room there there's there's one section and then the rest of the entire rio is empty yeah and especially the you know the room you're in so i was in amazon room and there's this one section and then the rest of the room is empty right and it's this hollowness to to it all and yeah. it's like it's only us. Yeah, it starts to get real. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, wait, it's only us. And I felt that pressure, you know, like the first time there. And I was like, wow, this is this is real. Yeah. Um, so that was really fun as well as like the bubble is fun because there's just so many people there that this is like kind of like a bucket list thing or like they're there with their group of bar friends or yeah. whatever that they play poker with. So there's like a lot of pictures and a lot of happy people. And yeah, I remember like a decade yeah. ago, a guy that we played with, uh, back in New York, he made the money with one chip. Wow. And he got like on ESPN coverage, like holding up uh, like a, a blind or something yeah. like that. You know, it was like a 25K chip or something along yeah. those lines. And, uh, you know, he was like a local hero for a week or, or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, it's a special event. It's a special environment. There's nothing that compares to making a deep run in the main event. Um, I think that this is my 13th or 14th one, maybe. Uh, I've cashed two or three i honestly don't remember my deepest run was 41st that that was also my first cash in the main event wow um the real focus just needs to be on like what a dream it is to still be in this thing on a day seven when there's yeah. five tables left and that room is empty mm -hmm. and you can see every single reporter and everyone in that room knows your name and like you know the pressure is as big as it's ever going to be yeah and you are literally a day and a half away from five ten million dollars depending upon the year are you guys hyped you listening to that you can be 10 hours away from 
millions of dollars if your ace king holds. Right. And many, <laughs> many, 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 many times. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the main event. I'm a big boy with a big boy bank Self-employed, independent Once you start, don't take no breaks Working till I get it I bet it's gonna take a second But once I start up my engine I'm gone Too fast to catch him I'm landing mixed up with UGK Maybe try to purple drink What I'm on is strong Yours, weaker than seven days Sweeter than creme brulee Presidential head of state Dopest motherfucker Since before I hit the seventh grade Elevate, cool the shit Cooler than what coolest is Slick without no lubricant Bullshit, you just fool a bit Stupid bitch Keep on hating I'm a fucking excited for the main God damn it, it's Christmas This is Christmas morning for professionals I am so excited Last minute I decided to Hop in an $80 flip on WSOP.com. Am I excited about the main event? Yeah, definitely. It's uh, it's impossible not to be. I am excited. I'm having fun. Last year was like, I was really nervous. First time doing it. I am not excited at this exact moment because I know how long this tournament is. I won it. One out of 128 shot and I'm in the main event. The streak continues. Let's go. But I'm still copping shit Germans on a beat He got that heat Hold up, drop it quick And bring it back I could change the world With just a single track Underage table in the back Smoking, drinking, yeah Pittsburgh, let me show the world Just where my city at On the map Illa city out I guess that's just a fact I'ma live in Rome Drink Patron and have a ball After all, only get one life So there's no time to stall I'ma do it Stupid dudes with all exclusive shit To move with just a few kids Trying to bullshit Still my boys I straight up grew it like, fuck you, what you need, you can't get nothing from me You was talking shit, now I'm somebody you would love to be I'ma do my thing until the day the reaper come for me You can keep on grilling, I'ma smile back, smile back like, fuck you, what you need, you can't get nothing from me You was talking shit, now I'm somebody you would love to be Is it the softest event of the year? Because as far as your ROI goes, yeah, for sure Okay You know, it's like you're paying $10,000 and you could potentially win 8,000 times that amount Every year, it is going to be the best 10K yeah. of the year. Well, not even just the best 10K. It's like almost no other event you ever play will be 8,000x to first place. Yeah. So it's like, uh, it's just the greatest demonstration of potential positive variance that any one human could ever like go through. So to win the main event, obviously, you have to be on the right side of variance. There's no question about that. I don't care if you're the most talented player in the entire world. Right. And when you are on the right side of that variance, you're rewarded in a way that is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You'll just never, you'll never earn 8,000 extra buy-in in any other scenario. All right, so you heard it here first. Berkey agrees with your markup because <laughs> it's the most profitable event of the year. Your markup is justified no matter what Mike McDonald says. Sure. Right? No, that's not true. Anyway, with that said, good luck out there in the main event. Good luck out there dodging the vendors. Good luck out there in Silicon Valley. Don't fall for the gold digging trap. And if you want to view more of us, we'll be selling tickets. I'll be selling premium content, premium shirts. If Silicon Valley is listening, we're on our way. Berkey has untold stories to tell you. <laughs> and we're out.